Have you guys caught on yet? These doggone questions these kids ask, they're pretty good, aren't they? A little, little, little bit deeper, you know, that we could dig into. They're really questions that, that all of us either have or, or will wrestle with uh, at some point. These, these, these are questions that matter. Uh, they're pertinent to our faith. They're pertinent to, to us as individuals. Um, before we get started today, let's talk a little bit about wolves. I don't know how much you know about wolves. I love wolves. I love, you guys, I think most everybody here knows I love the outdoors. Uh, I love God's creation. I love fishing. I love the mountains. I, I think wolves are cool. Uh, neat thing about wolves, right? Wolves, you know, they get this, uh, I don't know, persona as like ravenous beasts. And they don't get that for no reason. I mean, these things will, will take down huge animals. And they eat. They eat far more as far as that goes. A, a, a wolf will eat incredible amounts of food, far more than it actually needs to survive. But here's why. Here's why. These same wolves, they'll, they'll, you know, this, this pack of wolves will attack something. They take down this bison, and, and they, they eat. And I mean, they stuff themselves. And then they take off, and they, they, they head back to their, to their dens where their cubs are waiting, right? Now, these cubs are all excited. Here comes mom and dad and the whole crew. And, and, and they're waiting, and, and what they do is, man, out of their joy, these, these happy, happy little pups start licking the faces of their moms and dads and, 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 and whoever's there. And it triggers a reaction. There's a, a chemical reaction, a, a gland that it, that it irritates in the wolf. And what happens is, after they've gorged themselves on this immense amount of food, and, and it triggers this reaction, and these, these pups that are incapable of hunting on their own these, these, these other wolves, and not just the moms, not just the dads, but I mean, everybody in the pack contributes to this. It triggers this reaction. They recurgitate this food. And I know that sounds gross, but it's from that, that process that the cubs are kept alive, that the pack is kept alive in perpetuity. It's beautiful. Today, and really through all of this series, as we deal with these questions, these theological questions, you may hear that word, theology. Uh, some of you guys that went to Catholic school may really be like, ah, no, no, you know. We are keeping, I don't know if you guys know this, uh, you know, funny, being a youth minister, right? The statistics on the number of children who grow up in the church, in a Christian home, and they, they leave the faith. They go to college, and they get hit with some questions. And these are good questions that they get hit with that the, the regular world's asking them. But these kids are ill-equipped to answer those questions. And for many of them, what, they, what that means to them, I mean, some people, they may get distracted by money, they may get distracted by other stuff. But by and large, a common thing is, well, I asked the question, but I never got an answer. So they think there's no substance behind the faith. And that's not true. So as we dig through theology, as we dig through these things, we are like these wolves, all right? You and I are going to digest as much as we can get. We're going to put as much in us as we possibly can so that when our kids come nipping at our face, we can feed them. We can have the answers. Our hope, my hope, the hope of each person on this staff, the hope of the elders, is that each and every person here in this room, that you will be equipped, that you will be fully fed and fully stuffed that you could go home, that you can go home to your family, that you can go to work, 
that you can regurgitate this information, that you can provide the nourishment, that the peck will continue to go on for perpetuity. Theology is serious business. What we believe is serious business. It's life. When you hear, this is how serious it is, as parents, right? As parents, we are the folks who will have the most repeated contact with our children. We are the ones that can have the most impact, good or bad. This is the simple truth for all of us who are raising kids in the church. We have to become the best Christian casemakers our kids know so we can respond quickly to their concerns and questions. As parents, we are still the first line of Christian defense. We have to be fed so that we can sustain our Now, our question this week, it's a good one, and it kind of ties in a little bit with Rob's question last week. The questions are, where did Jesus come from, and when did this happen? Now, these are good questions. Before we set out, though, I wanted to give a few definitions, okay, so we can get past a couple of things to set up a little bit of a framework as we go in. The first thing uh, is we seek to grasp where did Jesus come from. One of the things that we need to understand is what theology is. Like, you hear that word, and I think somebody can get a get a weird spin on it, you can think that belongs to somebody else. All theology is, is the study of God and God's relation to the world. Now, what that means is, all right, you're going to get called a lot of things this week. I'm going to call you a theologian. Every person in this room is a theologian. In other words, every person in this room, you have an understanding, you have an interpretation, you have a thought about who God is and and what he's called us to do, you are theologians, every person. As a matter of fact, when I say every person, even the biggest atheist in the world, Richard, he is a theologian. He has a belief about God. Now, his belief may be uh, completely wrong, but he has a belief about God. So all, that's all theology is, not a big, scary thing. We all have a theology. The question really comes, is our theology line up with what the Bible teaches? And that's where we're trying to get uh, really dialed in. It's what's really, really, really important. The other uh, section, as we're dealing, okay, we got questions about Jesus, is Christology. And Christology is the theological interpretation of the person and work of Christ. Uh, that's a really nice definition for Merriam-Webster, and it's just, hey, who is Jesus? What did Jesus come to do? Who does Jesus say that he is? And that's really the questions that we're trying to ask today. So as, as they say, well, where did Jesus come from? All right, uh, there's two different ways of thinking about that. There's, there's the big way, and then there's like the immediate way. So we're going to deal with the big way first. We're going to deal with the big way. Jesus has always been because Jesus is God. All right, now that ties in a little bit with what Rob was telling us last week. So we got to deal with this word aseity again. Uh, aseity, the absolute self-sufficient independence and autonomy of God. In other words, He's always been, and he's self-sustaining. As Jesus is God, then that aseity that, that, that Rob talked about last week, that applies to Jesus. That is exactly true. Jesus is eternal. He has always been. Now, that's a big thought for us. And I, I thought of, uh, you know, how can, how can you really illustrate this thing? And, I, and you know, more fancy theological words. There's a, a natural revelation, a revelation, so when we look at, God's creation, we can see little, little bits of God in the world reflected around us. It's what all of existence, which all, everything that you see was created to 
reflect God's glory. So we can get a little bit of information about God by looking at what he's created. And then there's divine revelation, which is what we get in his book and what we get in Christ Jesus himself. All right? So I tried to think of some things that were from natural revelation that we could kind of understand a little bit. So that first picture is something that I think we've all seen before. You've been to geometry class, you know what this thing is. It's a line. Now, the first day of geometry class, you probably went in and you thought, you thought you knew something about lines, but what you discovered is you really didn't know what a line was because you thought you drew a line on a piece of paper and you had a line. And the very first thing they tell you is a line, isn't a, that's a line segment. It has a beginning and it has an end. A line goes on forever. Now, don't get me wrong. We can't exactly understand that, but you get a visual reference. You get some kind of picture. Okay, I kind of got an idea of what a line is, and God exists in the same way. He's on forever. He has no beginning. He has no end. But you and I, we exist in time. We exist in creation. So we're like uh, somewhere a, a little blip between uh, segment A, B. We're, we're some little spot on there, and all of creation, all of history, everything that we can see in the universe is somewhere contained in that. And, and God is, is somewhere out He's bigger than that. He's gone on forever. Now understand that as I use these illustrations from natural, uh, natural revelation, these are not perfect. These are not, we're dealing with an infinite God, and I'm trying to give some finite things to try to explain. So just uh, understand that I put a, a big asterisk. This is not a perfect illustration, but it kind of gives us a little bit of an idea as we try to wrap our minds around who is God? Who is Jesus Christ? He's existed forever. He is God. And what this gets us into is an explanation. Because you're like, well, wait a minute. Then why didn't, why didn't Rob just say Jesus last week? Right? We have to explain the nature of God, all right? And, and so we got to get into this doctrine. It's, it's pretty faint. Again, you hear these words, doctrine and theology. They're all scary. No, just, just hear me out. Trinity, all right? We believe in a triune God. That is, that is Christian Orthodox. That is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it says. The doctrine of the Trinity. This is how Merriam-Webster defines it. The unity of Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit as three persons in one Godhead according to Christian dogma. The unity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as three persons in one Godhead, according to Christian dogma. So, uh, so again, a big thought. This is hard to understand. We can break it down into three simple statements that, again, you put them all together. This is not, this is, belongs to God and no one else, okay? So this is hard. The Trinity means God is three persons, three distinct persons. And each one of those persons is fully God, and there is one God. Let me say that again. God is three persons. Each person is fully God, and there is one God. Clear as mud? <laughs> a little mysterious, a little hard to understand? Good. It, it should be. It is, all right? We're dealing with something infinite. We are dealing with God. All right, nothing else is like God. Nothing that we can observe is like God. He created everything, but nothing is exactly like him. This is how he exists. This is the Trinity nature of God. And as I thought through ways to complain, there's lots of different little illustrations, right? And again, I, I just want to emphasize so clearly, none of these illustrations are perfect. None of them. This one is all right. This one's, this one's good, but it's not, it's, it's not perfect. There's plenty of flaws. But you think of a campfire. You guys like fire? I love fire. 
I can just sit around, and it doesn't matter what the temperature is, what's going on. It could be the middle of the summertime at 100 degrees. It could be minus 20 degrees outside. There's something just deeply in my soul satisfied with sitting around the campfire, smelling the smoke, you know, for heaven's sakes, put some ribs on, and that's, <laughs> we're in a good place, all right? And we can all, we've all like, we've all been around fire. We can all kind of grasp what fire is. That's, that's easy enough. And if we can think of God as a moment, as a fire, all right? Now, a fire is a fire. But there's three, three things that kind of make this fire up. There's, we get the flame. We can see that visually dancing in front of us. And that fire produces light. And we can, we can see light. We, we, we get the idea of, of light. Now, light is not flame, and flame is not light. They're different, but they're, they're, they're there. And then we also get heat. Now, heat is not light, and heat is not flame, but they're all present right there in that fire. That's as close as I can get to explain mystery. Like, that's, that's, that's as much. And there is some mystery there because we are dealing with a mis- we are dealing with the supernatural. We're dealing with a God that breathes out stars and created every single one of you. If you've seen the snowflakes coming in, every one of those snowflakes were different. Every single one of them. For eternity. For, for all of recorded history, everyone's been different. That's pretty hard to wrap my mind around. It's pretty hard to wrap my mind around the nature of God here. That's the best I can do. A fire. All right? And kind of, kind of get some, some basis. Now, did, okay, we need some, some scripture. This is way too long into a sermon for me not to have scripture. It's driving me crazy. This has been a hard week this week as we study, but we had to have some framework to kind of set this up. This verse that I'm about to share, for me, was a transformational moment on my way to becoming a Christian. I was looking at the faith, I was exploring the Bible, and I was trying to understand, who is this Jesus? Who is he? All right, that is the central question. For all humanity has to deal with this question, who is Jesus? And for me, man, I didn't know, well, should I pray to God the Father? Should I pray to the Holy Spirit? Should I pray to Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus guy? And uh, as I was going through this Bible study, I, again, I was going to a church, but I was not a Christian yet. I had not given my heart to Christ. I was just, I was trying to understand things. All right, and I come to this verse in John 8, and uh, uh, this big light bulb goes off. It was one of the huge aha moments in my walk to come into the faith. And this is what it said. Jesus said to them, and he's being approached by these Pharisees, these Sadducees. They're asking him all kinds of questions. And Jesus makes this statement. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, combined, we're talking a thousand years before this, I am. And so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now understand, Jesus says, I am. Now, uh, maybe when you hear that, that doesn't send off a big light bulb. For me at the time, it did, because we had been going through the Old Testament, and I, and I knew something about that I am statement, all right? And, and, but I, but I want to point something out, and this is going to help us kind of give us a key to make sure that, that what I'm about to say next, you make the same connection, and it's clear, very clear. Look at the response of the Pharisees. They, their immediate response was to pick up rocks and kill him for blasphemy. They recognized immediately what Jesus said, and, and you and I can't miss it. So we go back. We go back to the Old Testament. We go back to Exodus 3, and uh, Moses is talking to a burning bush, and he's hearing the voice of God. And this is what said. Moses said to God, and, and, and God is telling Moses that, look, I'm going to send you to Egypt to set my people free. And Moses is like, I think you got the wrong guy. 
It's, it's not, I mean, what do I say? What do I do? I can't talk. What, what you know, and, and he's, he's got all these reasons. He's trying to reason with God. And, and, and one of the, Moses says to God, he says, look, if I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. That was such an identity. He said, I am. I just, you go back to that, that concept of a Sadie. Always exist. You tell them, I am sent you. So when Jesus stands there before those Pharisees that day, and he says, look, before Abraham was, before everything, I, I am. Jesus is very clearly saying, I am God. Now this leads us to, to your, your, your word to use in a sentence this week. Two words, really. Two thoughts. Uh, early on in the church, they wrestled with this, okay? They wrestled with trying to understand, and, and whether there was some, uh, basically around 325, they had a council. There was a, a, a schism in the church. There were some people that believed one thing, and there were some people that believed others, and they needed to settle. They needed to figure out who was, again, you come to this question, who is Jesus Christ, all right? And it comes down to this word, homo usios versus homai usios. Now, homo Uzias means of the same nature. In other words, Jesus is of the same nature as God. Jesus is God. Or, homai Uzias means of a similar nature. In other words, there was a group led by a guy named Arius who said that, uh, you know, Jesus was a good guy and all, and he was similar in nature to God, but he was created by God. So they held this big council of Nicaea. They held another one called the Council of Constantinople. And really at their heart, they were settling an interpretation issue over one letter, that, that, that little I and that O, an iota. And the, argu- the argument was, look, is he of the same nature or is he of a similar nature? Now, you may look at those letters and you may look at that and be like, self, asking yourself, self, is it really that big a deal? I mean, let me, big deal. You guys heard of this guy named St. Nicholas? He just had Christmas. Let me tell you about Jolly St. Nick. At this council of Nicaea, Jolly St. Nick, confronted with this question before Arius, got so frustrated in a less than sanctified moment, old Jolly St. Nick walked right up and slapped Arius across the face for heresy. Got locked up for it. He asked for forgiveness. He was restored eventually to the church. Uh, went on to be the bishop of, of Smyrna. But, I mean, this is how passionate they were. And again, why, why, why? Well, I'll tell you why. There are people, I don't know if you know this, in this, in this community, in this community, all right, that would say, they would agree with Homai Uzias. They go to a Jehovah Witness place. There's some people that are Mormons. They would agree with that. Uh, they would maintain that Jesus was a created being. Now, here's the deal. Why it's so important that we get this right. Jesus says, and I quote very clearly, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, that's a very exclusive claim. We read John 3.16, whoever believes in him, that is Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, he will have eternal life. Uh, Matthew 16, you know, these, these uh, or, yeah, 16, the Pharisee, or the, 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 Jesus is coming up, the disciples are talking to him, and he's talking to them, and he says, hey, who, who do people say the Son of Man is? Who are people out there saying that I am? And people had lots of answers. Positive answers, good answers. I mean, no, you know, the, the answers they give, what uh, they say he's John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or the prophets. Now, these are all created. I mean, these aren't bad dudes to be. That's not who Jesus was. He says, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? It's the central question. So uh, if he's not of the same nature, who, the Jesus you believe in matters. There are a bunch of people who are Jehovah's Witnesses who believe that, God, that, that Jesus Christ is of similar nature to God, who believe, who are passionate about that, who are, quote, end quote, good people. They'll go knock on your door, and they'll tell you all about how they are, they're, they're Christian. They got it right, and they believe. And you know what? On, there's a day that's coming, and they're going to knock at another door. And Jesus is going to look at them, the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus who's of the same nature as God. He's going to look him right in the eyes and say, I never knew you. It's important. It's important. Passionate people. People trying to do, right? Trying to misled. One letter. Big, big difference. Big difference. Who, who is our faith? Is our faith in Jesus of the Bible as he presents himself, or is it in something else? Someone else. Because Jesus that lives down the street from me, I can't put my faith in him. Go on. Identifying Christ's divinity. Famous passage of scripture. Lots of folks in here are going to know this. Matthew 28. Go therefore. And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Now understand, he's not saying, look, I, I need you to do three different baptisms. Once for the Father or once for the Son. No. One baptism. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. All God. One. Singular. Baptizing them in the name. Singular. Not names. The name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is God. One member of the Trinity. Part. One God, three persons, distinct as they could be. Hard, hard to reference. But that's, the, that, that's what he said. Now, three persons in the Trinity, and they're distinct. What makes them distinct, though, it's the distinctive works of each member of the Godhead that distinguishes each person in the Trinity. Guys, we should really get this. What do you do? You walk up to a guy, walk up and say, hey, what do you do for a living? Right? First words out of our mouth. We understand what do you do relates to our identity. It's the distinctive works of the Godhead distinguish each person in the Godhead. All right? So you have God the Father. 
He is uh, the architect of creation and salvation. Sets it all in order. This is what we're going to do, right? We have God the Son. He is the executor of creation and salvation. He executes the plan. Creation is going to happen. Salvation is going to happen. This is my role. This is what I'm doing. And then we have God the Spirit, who is the perfecter of creation and salvation. Sanctifying us, perfecting creation. Jesus says, I'm making all things new. And it's through the Spirit, that's, what's, that's, what's happened. that's what happens in our hearts. That's why uh, if you can think back to the time that you were saved, and you can look at the way you are now, and you can say, wow, look at what Jesus has done in my heart. And I hope everybody here can say that. Look, look. It's the evidence. It's the fruit. It's what he's doing. It's the perfecting that the Holy Spirit's work. That's his role. Not just in our lives, but in all of creation. All and you see this. In, in a, and again, I like using these very uh, common verses that everybody knows. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You see God the Father loving the world and giving his son who came to, to, to save and redeem. And you see whoever believes, who's had the spirit act on them, will not perish but have eternal life. You see all three at work in this one verse. And if you just read that verse on the surface, you're going to miss it. But it's all right there. You see God, the triune God at work, right there. Right there. Go back to Jesus' role. Questions about Jesus, right? Jesus' role is in creation and salvation. All right, so we start off. We go back to the beginning. I know this is a ton of information. Stay with me. It's worth it, I promise you. All right, we go back to the very beginning. And when I say the beginning, I'm going to say Genesis 1 beginning. We go back to the beginning. This is what Scripture says. Then God said, listen carefully, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. So we see, let us in our image. We see the plurality of God. Uh, they use the word Elohim. It's a, it's a plural identification of God, even though it's, it's, it's one God. But we see the three distinct persons, all present, right at the beginning of creation. If you don't believe me that Jesus was there at creation, well, then we'll, go, we'll fast forward. And just uh, if, a, a chunk of years later, a guy named Paul, he's writing in the book of, of uh, Colossians, and this is what he's got to say. I love this. Part. I love this, this chunk of scripture. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is, that is Jesus Christ. Now you see that word firstborn? Look, the Jehovah Witness down the street is going to tell you, see, he was created. Well, if you are thinking in a Western mindset, I guess you could wrestle with that. That's a funny thing. Both of those, Mormons and Jehovah Witness, both Western mindset, formed right here in the good old USA, all right? Western mindset, Western understanding of what that meant, firstborn. It means preeminent. In other words, not firstborn in, in lineage, 
but firstborn in authority. The firstborn child had all the power, had all the, Jesus is ruler of all, and you see that in the rest of that verse. Created in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, everything was created through him. He's the creator and for him. He is before all things. Again, the divinity of Christ on display. And in him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, even the first, right? So that in everything, in everything, he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see creation, you see salvation through Christ Jesus. Now, kids ask a question. Where did he come from? Well, we got the answer. But I think what they were really asking most likely, wasn't necessarily, they didn't realize how deep that was, all right? They were asking, when, when was he born? When did this, like, when did this happen? As in, when did Jesus step onto the scene? All right? So we get into another couple of definitions. Incarnation, all right? Uh, Merriam-Webster defines it this way, the union of divinity with humanity in Jesus Christ. I personally like the way Wayne Grudem defines it. The act of God the Son, whereby he took to himself a human nature. I like that much better. You see God active. The act of God the Son, whereby he took himself. You see him working. You see him moving. You see him as the Lord making his move to redeem the world, to step into humanity. It's amazing. We just celebrated Christmas, right? We just, so. That's where we're going to go. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be the son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word, and the angel departed. God was stepping in. Jesus was stepping in. He had a plan. 
It wasn't, I love Rob's up here. Not plan B. No. Remember that number line? Think anything surprises God? Anything you're going to do is going to surprise God? Anything that's ever happened is surprise? Nope. This was the plan. Jesus was stepping in. Mary asked the question, how is this going to be? Not so much, a, it, it, you, you can get the sense from the text. It's not so much a, uh, you know, just a, a little bit before Zechariah asked a question. Now, his question was clearly doubt, and the response of Gabriel is really clear. You, you get that. But then you see this, and she's just like, okay, uh, well, I've, I've been around for however many years Mary's been alive, and I, I've seen babies come one certain way. How in the world are you? What, what's the plan here, God? I want to know the practical purpose, how this is going to happen. Well, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. The power of the Most High is going to overshadow. This is a supernatural thing. God is coming. He is coming. And guess what, Mary? You get to be part of that. Don't be scared. Don't be scared. I'm coming to save the world. Jesus is coming. And he steps in to this world. So the question is, when did this happen, right? Well, when? Approximately 2 or 3 B.C. Approximately, huh? That's tough when we see that. We're like, wait a minute, approximately? Why approximately? Well, here's why. The deal is there were competing calendars at the time. You and I take for granted the calendars. We really do. There were three calendars at the time that Jesus was born. There was the Roman calendar, which dated back to 753 BC. It was based on the founding of Rome by Romulus and Remus. There was a Julian calendar. Now that dated back to 46 BC, and it was based on the Edict of Julius Caesar. Hey, we're going to have this calendar. And then there was an imperial calendar based on Julius Caesar's rise to absolute power. In other words, people would say, well, in the 16th year of the reign of Caesar Augustus, which we see that even in the scriptures, you'll see that in some places. So it creates this like era where, well, it could, you know, where there's a little bit of confusion because of we got different calendars and we got different people reporting different events who have different philosophies and maybe using different calendars at the same time. It's tough. So we get this, this time period, right? Um, but we get, more importantly, what Scripture gives us is hallmark points to pick up on so that we can hone in on that time, right? So in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. The beginning of Luke 2. Everybody loves Luke 2, but you kind of probably skip over that part. But it's given pertinent information. Caesar had called for a census. Quirinius was the governor of Syria. Now understand that when we call for a census today, Congress shows up, the president, he says, well, whatever. Whoever calls for it says, hey, we're going to have a census. Everybody gets on the media. They blast that thing out. They got a whole team of people who travel all over the country, and they knock on your door, and they send out information. And they, it, it can happen in, like, days. You know what I'm saying? The census can be pretty quick. Back then, if I called for a census, then I had to send chariots out in all the directions to my prefects, and then my prefects had to send chariots out. And all This took time. This was a time-consuming thing. This, this was a window, all right? So it gives us a window. It gives us a glimpse to understand, okay, well, Jesus was born about here. We get some facts that kind of help us hone in on that, but we cannot say with precision. We cannot, all right? You want my personal opinion? I think it was probably closer to 3 BC based on some facts. But there's, there's, there's wiggle room, all right? 
What about the crucifixion? Again, when did this happen? When did this happen? Well, crucifixion timing, again, because of the calendars. Approximately 33 AD. Some people would say as early as 30. Some people would say 31 because some Chinese folks said there was a a weird uh, uh, anomaly in the sky. Based on the facts, again, I tend to lean more towards 33, which incidentally puts Jesus about 36 when he was crucified, which lines up with some other things. So again, a little bit of looseness, not because there isn't the, 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 uh, the gospel writers were not so much concerned with that kind, with precision of dates as much as precision of the information. In other words, you don't need to know the exact date, like the, to the day. You need to know that Jesus Christ died for your sins. You need to believe on this Jesus of the Bible. That's what they were concerned with. They had no idea uh, at their time that 2,000 years ago, we'd be standing here talking about it. No clue. All right, so they gave us information. As far as that goes, back then, if I would have heard Quirinius and I would have heard Caesar, the truth is, I would have known. When I would have heard the date, I would have known exactly what that date was, even with all the different dates going on, because I lived then. They weren't thinking about us this far out. So the, the approximate timing, that's why there, there is. And what I want you to see is we, you hear these dates, 3 BC, and then we get into AD. That history quite literally hinges on Christ, all right? You guys hear the B.C.s and A.D.s. Now, understand that system came from a guy named Dionysus who tried to compute when Christ was born, all right? And uh, he didn't quite do it right, but based on his math, all right, he, he got a little bit off. That, that was why we got before Christ an anti-the-many in the year of our Lord. Literally, our history, our world history, hinges on that moment. Now, there is a movement in the world, in the secular world right now, to uh, change B.C. and A.D. to B.C.E. and C.E., that is, before Common Era and Common Era. Now, here's what's hilarious. Change it to whatever name you want. Call it red and blue or what? I mean, just whatever. It's the dumbest thing in the world. Guess what? History still hinges on Christ. It's still hinged on that moment. It's still hinged on his birth. When did it happen? Then. All of history rotates around the birth of Christ. Now, as I'm walking through all this and we're we're wrestling through, we come across this idea, and and I wanted to get into just a little bit of it. Because usually when, when when a kid is asking this question, what he's really saying is, when did this happen? Why did this happen? Can I believe in this Jesus of the Bible? Is there, is there reasonable evidence? Is there proof that, that I should put my faith here in Jesus? And we get into this area of theology called apologetics. Apologetics is a branch of theology devoted to the defense of the divine origin and authority of Christianity. So if you guys have heard of guys like Rabbi Zachariah, C.S. Lewis is one of them, uh, Lee Strobel wrote The Case for Christ. There's guys out there that contend for the faith, that seek to, to, to present before the world the evidence that you can believe what you read in the Bible, that I can believe that because Jesus said he is God, he is God, that the authority of the scriptures is true, all right? Uh, but we, before we get into that, we, we need to, to make a separation here, all right? The idea of proof. Of, uh, so, so we will set it up as scientific proof versus legal proof. What's fascinating, if you Google the word proof, is proof real? You'll find that there is a whole bunch of controversy over the word proof. See, for scientific proof to be proof, what it means is you need to have a controlled environment and you need to be able to repeat that thing 
over and over again. So I pick up my water bottle, I throw it, it comes down. I throw it, it comes down. Now I do that a million times, and man, it just keeps coming down, it keeps coming down. So I believe in the law of gravity. I believe there's some proof there that that exists. But here's what's crazy. I don't live in a vacuum, so a comet hits this earth and some crazy thing happens or whatever, knocks us off, we lose a little bit of gravity, that thing could float. I could wind up in space and I could throw this thing up in the air and guess what it's going to do? <laughs> go, on, go on forever as far as I know. Proof is, a, is an elusive thing. So instead of thinking about proof, what we need to think about is evidence. Does the evidence... Point. And, and, and so you get scientific proof is repeatable, controllable. I can, if, I, if I do A, A to B, then C happens every single time. And that isn't how it works. That isn't how it works in the legal system. That's not really how it works very much in the, in the real world at all. Instead, what we get is evidence. All right? If I look at the evidence and I add up the facts, then I can come to a reasonable conclusion that this is exactly what it says it is. And that is what we're really looking for in life, in general, and certainly with the Scripture. Does the evidence support what the text is saying? And the answer is yes. All right, what's fascinating in the study of apologetics, and you will find this time and time again, the the people that are the most vocal apologists, they start from a place of unbelief. And what they do is they set out. I mean, seriously, C.S. Lewis set out this way. Lee Strobel set out this way. James Warner Wallace, he set out this way. From a place of unbelief, I am going to prove, because I am so smart, that Christianity is false. And so they start researching the facts, and they start looking at the evidence. And these are smart guys. These are reasonable guys. And as they dig, and as they search, and as they look, Jesus Christ changes their heart and they're forced to say, look, I am a reasonable person. I am a smart person. When I look at all the facts, it has to be true. It has to be true. All right? So what kids are really asking is, can I trust it? So I like to start with this picture right here. Big picture, right? That's a pretty big picture. There's Israel right there on the map. It's a real place. It's a real place. This, this isn't, uh, I can remember not that long ago, Caden uh, said, wait a minute, wait a minute. And I love it because he accepted, Jesus died for us, he, but he, it was like he had this idea that it was in a different world, in a land far, far away. And he's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. This happened here? And I'm like, dude, I didn't think you thought, like, yes, this happened here. <laughs> like, are you kidding? There it is on the map. This is the real world. I know you flat earthers. Even if it's a flat earth, it's there, okay? It's there. Let's take it a little little tighter, though. Now, now here it is on the map. You can see it kind of lined out there in yellow, and, and of course, there's all kinds of discrepancies about where the boundaries should be. None of them are the biblical boundaries. Biblical boundaries are quite a bit bigger, but you get the idea. There's Israel between Egypt and Syria and Iraq and Jordan, just just right there in the Middle East, okay? Let's see if we can zoom in just a little little bit tighter here. A little tighter? Oh. Now, there is the synagogue at Caesarea Philippi. That's where Jesus taught. That's where his ministry was kind of centered. I got this picture, though, from somebody. I didn't, like, uh, I didn't Google this. I mean, I, mean, I could have Googled it. I could have got pictures. Israel's got tons and tons of pictures out there, but I didn't, I didn't do that. Let's, let's zoom in just a little tighter there. You recognize that guy? There he is at the aqueduct. 
Now, Alan was just talking about them aqueducts just, just a couple weeks ago. And there's John. This is a, a real place. This, is, this really, really happened in the real, real world. And there's all kinds of evidence. There's places you can go and you can read the scripture and you can go to the place and be like, you know, I listened to John and Alan talk about their trips to Israel and how it changed the way they read their Bibles forever because there's just so much of the history left. It's overwhelming. I've listened to Alan tell me about, he goes to the shopping mall, a mall. Ladies are doing some shopping. All right, going to get some souvenirs. It's at the mall. And there's this little, I don't know, a little sign, a little, little roped off, just, just a little area. He's got a ladder. He's trying to figure out what the heck that is. So he walks over there, and there's this little plaque. It says, well, this is, this is where the, was it Jebusites or the Hittites? Jebusites. This is where the ancient Jebusites lived, at the mall. There is so much archaeology in this area, and it's just like right there, and they've been there, and they've seen it, and I'm like, I want to go, I want to go, I want to go. One of these days, one of these days, you know, that's on the list. Um, it's just there. The proof is there, all right? The proof is there. So one of the other things we look at is the reliability of Scripture. Can, can I believe this book. So, all right, Israel exists. There's definitely some of these places that are mentioned. Well, how do I know the Bible's telling me the truth? How do I know that, by, that Jesus really said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except me. That's an important question. How do I know? Jesus says, you know, who am I? You know, who do you say I am? That's an important question, but I, I better get that right. We understand now a little bit that that's important. How do I know that what the Bible says is true? Well, for starters, we have an immense amount of surviving manuscripts. All right, in just the New Testament, there are 6,000 surviving manuscripts. I'm going to give you some perspective, all right? You heard of the Iliad? Homer's Iliad, you guys remember that from school? There's 600 copies, original copies of that. That's it. Now, we don't question, did Homer write the Iliad? But that's it. There's only 600, all right? Pretty, pretty small amount. You get into, like, the histories of Julius Caesar, and you're talking, like, three or four, even Shakespeare stuff. The actual original manuscripts, very small. It is phenomenal, phenomenal how many surviving copies of the Scripture. And here's the deal. Of those copies, because there's so many of them, they hold a 99.5% accuracy. 99.5. These people who were scribes were specially chosen to painstakingly copy. There was no printing presses. This is one person writing down copy after copy after copy. And when you got that many copies, here's what happens. Well, 5,672 of those copies say all the exact same thing. And these handful of copies over here, instead of using an E, they used an I. Which one's right? It becomes really, really evident then because you have such a wide sampling, what the Scripture actually said. The reliability of the New Testament from a, a scientific standpoint, as close as you can get, it's unbelievable. It is unbelievable how well God was able to preserve his word. The Old Testament, phenomenal. They find these Dead Sea Scroll thing. They thought they had a, you know, a pretty good gauge on what the Old Testament said. They find this Dead Sea Scroll thing that presents this book of Daniel that is a thousand years, a thousand years older than their, their, their earliest copy that they had. A thousand years. A lot of time to make mistakes, right? 
A lot of, you know, it's not the telephone game. You don't know what you're going to get at the end. A thousand years, separate them. And they put them side by side, and they're identical. What the Scripture says is what the Scripture says. Not only that, archaeology supports what Scripture says. We've seen those pictures. It's all there. It's all there. As a matter of fact, they continually find stuff. Every single day, new discoveries that support what Scripture says. You got the fulfillment of the prophecies. It's the only book like it. This book, man, it is amazing. If you go to that Old Testament and you read through the prophecies that pointed to Christ, just Christ and his fulfillment, and you start doing the math, there's really smart people out there that do the math for that thing, and you're talking astronomical for him to fulfill three of the thousands of prophecies he fulfilled perfectly in his life. God's record is amazing. There's no other book like it that says this is going to happen in the future. Exactly like I say, it's going to happen and it happens. This is it. Extra biblical historians confirm or affirm what the Bible says. In other words, I can look at the, the, the history of Rome and I can see all these same leaders that the Bible says. Not only that, I can see accounts of this guy, Jesus, outside of scriptures. It's, it's, it's overwhelming evidence, overwhelming. You have, to, you have to come to a place where you either you look at all the evidence and you say, look, it, it has to be true or, you know what, it has to be true, but I refuse to believe it because I don't want to deal with what that is in my life. Go on. I love this quote. This is, uh, which one is this? So this is from Wallace. Again, Wallace starts out as an atheist. He is set. This guy is a detective for the L.A. Homicide Squad. This is like their cold case guy. The best. Not just the best in L.A., like the best in the world cold case guy. Has solved hundreds of cold case murders because of his ability to follow the evidence. And he set out to follow the evidence and prove once and for all, that Jesus, none of this was real. And this is what he has to say. I have to admit that I never took the time to examine the evidence for the Christian worldview without the bias and presupposition of naturalism. I never gave the case for Christianity a fair shake. When I finally examined the evidence fairly using the tools I learned as a detective, I found it difficult to deny especially if I hope to retain my respect for the way evidence is utilized to determine truth. I found the evidence for Christianity as convincing as any cold case I'd ever investigated. Lee Strobel say the same thing. So what, what's the point? You and I cannot feed our cubs if we don't have the meat. You and I need to answer these questions. We need to pass. You need to ask these questions. If our kids see us and when they ask a question, it's okay. What if you don't have the answer? Go find somebody that does. The, the answers are out there is what I would say. When it comes to theology, it breaks my heart that a college kid would be quoted as, I asked questions and there were no answers. Christianity is not real. That is 
unbelievably not true. The truth is we have thousands of years of people dedicated to answering questions. But do we take our faith serious enough to learn the answer? And if we don't take our faith serious enough, how in the world do we expect our children to take their faith serious enough? We have to come to the place where we look, where Jesus looks us. Maybe not physically in this life, it's common, but spiritually, and he says, who am I? We have to have the answer. I'll leave you with a quote from C.S. Lewis. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that is Jesus Christ. That I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. You don't get, who do you say that Jesus is? Who? Who is he? You have to have an answer for that question. You're going to have to have an answer for that question. And for heaven's sakes, how are your children going to hear the answer? You can't. You have the best relationship with them. You have the best opportunity. We need to chew on these things. Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to proclaim your truth. Thank you for stepping into the scene, for making yourself known. Lord, more than that, for leaving so much evidence, so much overwhelming evidence of who you are, that, that who you say you are is exactly who you are, that what you came to do is exactly what you did, that you're coming back, that what you said you're going to do, you've done. Thank you. This is not a, a blind faith that you've called us into. You have given us all the reason in the world, Lord, and I pray that you would put a hunger, a burning hunger in the hearts of each and every one of us to look at the evidence, to know you more and more, to see you clear, to be able to articulate that to the people around us, that the, that the world around us would have to trip over the evidence as they're running headlong into hell. Because we have an answer. You have given us answers. Help us to be bold and to take responsibility to proclaim that good news. Thank you, Lord, for this day and every day, for every breath that we have. In Jesus' name.